You've heard the expression from worst to first or from first to worst. It's usually in the sports realm. It's, it's describing the rapid rise and, or fall of a, of a sports team. Uh, there's many examples. We have examples from our own Atlanta Braves back in the uh, early 90s. And, um, but I was thinking of the Boston Red Sox a few years ago. 2012, they finished last placed in the AL East with a dismal record of 69 and 93. Then the next season, uh, they, they had a regular season record of 97 and 65 and they plowed through the playoffs and made it to the World Series and defeated, who was it? St. Louis Cardinals. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Jeff, Frank. Uh, uh, in fact, I have a picture just to show you. I think it kind of captures well, uh, the contrast. Um, but this, this, so this is 2013. The next year, 2014, they finished last place in the AL East with the record of 71 and 91, one of the worst records by a defending champ. Well, this portion of Kings, it goes, it goes, uh, what he's, what, what the writer is doing is he's tracking the throne of Judah and what we find is it goes from worst to first, to worst, to first. This is a study in contrast. You have, you remember Ahaz from several weeks ago now. Ahaz was by far the worst king up to this point in Judah's history. He was a wicked idolater. And the, the, the writer of Chronicles says in Second Chronicles twenty-eight nineteen that he made Judah act sinfully. Wicked man. But his son, Hezekiah, as, we'll, as we saw last time and we'll see again today, he becomes the most godly king since David in Judah. He brings revival. He brings these sweeping reforms, spiritual reforms in the land. But then Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, who we'll see this morning, he proves to be even worse than Ahaz. And he reverses every one of those reforms that his father set in place. And his son, Amon, turns out to be just a chip off the old block. He's just as evil as his dad. But then his son, Josiah, he rivals Hezekiah for godliness and spiritual leadership in Judah. So it's just this extremes that we'll see in these, in these chapters. Father, son, father, son, worst to first, first to worst. And so this phenomenon, though, we, we know, we know is not limited to Judah's life in this portion of Kings. We, we, we see it elsewhere. I was just thinking of an, a, a more contemporary example of Francis Schaeffer, the godly brother and, and, and labored hard for the gospel. Many of you have been, have been impacted by his ministry. And then his son, Frank Schaeffer, basically just denies the faith. And, and we know that in our own experience. And, and we've, we've have our own versions of this in our own families and our own uh, network of people that we've seen. And one of the things this passage shows us is, is this. It's that while the influence of parents is very important in, in the bringing up of children, it is not deterministic. And I add, thankfully so. I mean, I'm thankful to God that's the case and for me. Um, that, that, that parenting is not a math formula. I know I say things like this at the parent-child dedications, but I also know you don't hear a word I say at the parent-child dedications because somehow you think those little babies are cuter and more in, in, uh, interesting than I am. And, um, but, but, but the 
the role of a parent has to be taken very seriously, but it's not there. There's mystery. There is mystery there. This is why we need God and we need to pray. And I, I, I read this quote often at these parent child dedications, but now you'll actually listen to it. And and so J.C. Ryle speaks of this in his little pamphlet, Duties of Parents. He says, without the blessing of the Lord, your best endeavors will do no good. He has the hearts of all men in his hands, and except he touch the hearts of your children by his spirit, you will weary yourself to no purpose. Water, therefore, the seed you sow on their minds with unceasing prayer. The Lord is far more willing to ask than, or to hear than we are to pray, far more ready to give blessings than we are to ask them. But he loves to be entreated for them. And I set this matter of prayer before you as the top stone and seal of all you do as parents. Now, this is not a this is not a text on parenting, but I, I I do think there's application there for us. Now, the writer really again he's not he's not dealing with the family dynamics. He's not trying to show us if there was a breakdown in the home in Hezekiah's family. That's not his point. But he is showing us the radical differences between these kings. And do you know what separates one king from another? What separates the worst from the first? It's how they're related to God. That's it. That's it. That's the thing that matters most in life. And this is the big idea that's going to tie these chapters together. It's that our relation to God determines the course of our lives. Period. It's that simple. That, that, that young people, listen to me especially, I mean all of us, but, but listen, young people, you, you're looking at a, a, many years ahead if God wills. But the most important thing about your life is not your appearance. It's not your intellect. It's not your education. It's not your athletic ability. It's not your wardrobe. It's not how your popularity. It's not... Your sense of humor, it's not your family background, it's not your culture, it's not your wealth, it's none of those things. The most important thing for you, and is that's it, it, going to be for you in life, is how, how do you relate to God? That is supreme, and I hope that we can see that. And we're going to see this idea unfold in the two chapters, and I'll just make four statements, and, and we'll draw it from, from this chapters 20 and 21. First statement we'll make is this, is, is when we turn to the Lord in our frailty, God hears our prayers. He hears our prayer. Where do you turn when trouble comes? Um, where are you turning right now? Maybe, you're, maybe this is a season of suffering. Who are you turning to? Where do you turn when your health fails? Where do you turn when death strikes close to you? family? What do you turn when you lose your job? Trouble is a given in life. It's not that there are the haves and the have-nots, and that's what separates one person from the next, those who have suffering and those who don't. No, we all have trouble. We all have pain. We all have sorrows. But how do you handle your pain? Where do you turn when the storms begin to, to build? The question is not Whether you're tough enough to handle it as a Christian, the question is, are you humble enough to cry out to God? Desperation and lean into God. Take refuge in Him. And that's what we'll see in this section. That's where, that's where we need to be. The last time we were in Kings, a couple weeks ago, if you remember, Assyria is at the doorstep of Judah. They are, they are at 
Jerusalem, prepared to lay siege to the city. Hezekiah is the most godly king since David, most gifted king since David. And he finds himself, though, as the Assyrian uh, chroniclers had said, he was, he was shut up in Jerusalem like a caged bird. He was helpless. He, had, he didn't have the resources to defend the city, to defend the people against this massive superpower of Assyria who was ready to just wipe them off the map. He was, he was completely helpless. He had nothing. He had no defenses. He had no assets. He had no resources. What he did have, though, was the promise of God. And that was enough. And we remember God delivered, uh, God delivered Judah and God delivered Hezekiah miraculously. Uh, without them having to lift the sword. And so you would expect chapter 20 then to pick the story up from there, telling what the remaining 14 years of Hezekiah's reign will be like. But that's not what we find. Instead, the writer of Kings does what he's done nowhere else in Second Kings, and he gives us a little flashback here. You know about flashbacks. And this is, he's showing these events that happened before Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, invaded and came, or came against Judah and Jerusalem. So he's giving us background information. And he's, what he's doing in chapter 20, he's showing us how, what God did to prepare the king's heart for this assault from Assyria. This threat. How God worked to grow his confidence in himself. In God uh, to prepare him for this and, and to prepare him where he would say when the Assyrian army came would come in Second Chronicles 32, 7 and 8. He uh, Hezekiah had this confidence in God. So he says to the people, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with them, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. What did God do to prepare Hezekiah to say that? It's a surprising thing. Maybe it's not, though. Because I think most of us who've walked with God for years can say we've seen the similar thing. God uses what? He often uses pain. He uses weeping. Uses heartache to bring us to the place where we trust Him supremely. So that's what we find. Verse 1, chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. Now, we're not given the details, gory details of his sickness, only we know it's serious, it's deadly serious. The only symptom that's mentioned is that he has these skin eruptions, boils on his skin. And, and the prophet Isaiah, the text says, goes to him. We, would, we can assume he's sent by God to go to Hezekiah. In verse 1, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Saying, you better contact Wessels and Dixon and get your will updated and your, all your financial legal documents in order. Because you're, you're not going to make it. Life, your, your days are numbered. Death is soon. And so this news stuns Hezekiah as it would you and me. He's 40 years old at the time. In verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. What is that? That's, he's, 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 he's trying to, this is, uh, we do this. We don't want people to see us weep. And here he is with Isaiah and he turns his face to the wall just seeking some privacy. 
in a sense, to hide his emotions. But more important than that, what does the text say? And he prayed to the Lord. I love those instincts. I love those prayer reflexes. Just get news like that. I prayed to the Lord. May that be true of us. Verse 3, and this is what he prayed. Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with the whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Now, this is not some whiny prayer of a little self-righteous goody two-shoes. God, I'm, I'm good. I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm a great person and I don't deserve this. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's not it. This is a recognition that God's law often promised long life to those who obeyed him. And this, he's, he's done what God asked of kings to do, to walk before me. First Kings 9, 4, as David, your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness. And Hezekiah is simply saying, God, I've, I've done that. And he had. And this isn't just cliche, riddle, rote, casual, repetitious prayer. No, he prayed to the Lord and the text says he wept bitterly as he prayed. And then verse 4, before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, so Isaiah comes, delivered the message, Hezekiah is left in puddle of tears, crying out to God, Isaiah turns to leaves, and before he gets out of the complex, the word of the Lord came to him. In verse 5, and God said, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. Oh, God hears when we pray. He, isn't that incredible? I know it so, seems so trite to say, but let's think about that. God, is infinite. God is alive. God is active. God listens. God answers. God works. God loves us. And He hears when we pray. But not only that, He says, I've heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I've seen your tears. Say this, God not only hears our words, He, he sees our tears. You see the bigness of God's compassion here. Does he have nothing better to do than watch us weep? He sees our tears. And there's application for us there. I I just say, is your prayer ever accompanied by weeping? This isn't about manipulating God. Like, if, if we can just cry or we can get God to do what we wanted to do, like a whiny kid kind of going to his dad and, you know, crying and just, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't mean that. You can have the toy, you can have the gum from the candy machine. This is not it at all, just to get him to stop crying. It's not it. This is, this is a sincere prayer, calling out to God for mercy that's accompanied by weeping. God hears the prayer, he sees the tears. And for, I think our eyes will be more wet than, than they are than we might think they are. If we're truly honest with God about seeing our situation as it really is, if we're honest about how bad things really are, if we're honest about how needy we are, if we're honest about how good and gracious God is, if we're, we're honest about how important God's cause is and His mission is, then, then we'll weep and God will see our tears as He hears our prayers. Be concerned if your prayers are not watered with weeping at times. Um, 
So, but, but, and also take comfort. Brothers and sisters, maybe, maybe your prayers are, they're all accompanied with weeping right now. Again, God, God doesn't see the tears if they're not accompanied with praying either. It's not that we just cry and, but God, God wants our, wants our weeping accompanied with praying and, and He sees, He knows, He hears. And notice another thing, that God's answer goes far beyond Hezekiah's request. And God is predictably gracious like that, isn't he? I mean, we ask for a little sip of water and he just gives us this spring. And he's so good in that way. God not only heals Hezekiah, he promises him 15 more years, we find in the text. And, and that's great news for somebody who's about to make his own funeral arrangements. Um, and God makes a promise to the nation in light of Hezekiah's deliverance. Verse 6, I will, I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And so it's, notice it's for the sake of God, for the sake of the covenant that he made with David, that he will act. God is arming Hezekiah with this promise so that he'll be prepared again to face Assyria in verse 7, we have these instructions. Isaiah said, bring, me a cake of fi- bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Now, some of you natural herbalist folks here, you love that kind of stuff, don't you? And you're saying, no, it's not that. It's garlic and dried cat's tongue or something like that. And you rub that in there. It works every time. But, um, but, but well, I just say, the, the application, I mean, there is, there is application there. Not the cat's tongue part, but... Um, God's healing doesn't, doesn't always occur without means. I mean, God uses means. And it's not the, it's not the fig cake that heals him. It's God who heals him. God uses means. It's, it's still God who heals, but he often uses medical and other means to do so. But, so, so, so God does this and he pledges to do this. But before he even, before he even gets the fig cake and starts rubbing it in there, Hezekiah asked for a sign to confirm the prophet's word. And we're not told why, but he's not rebuked by the Lord. He asked for a sign and the Lord grants him that request and even gives him a choice. And so there's this whole about the shadow. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or back ten steps? And there was this stairway of Ahaz, these steps of Ahaz, which was apparently kind of used as a sundial. And so as the sun moved across the sky, it, they could kind of count and tell time by this stairway. And so Hezekiah chooses what would be the more difficult one. He said, well, just make it go backwards. Let's move it back. And, and the Lord brought the shadow back 10 steps, verse 11. And so this, this is a miracle. And it, and, and it proves, and, it, and certainly it was, this faith-growing experience for Hezekiah. Again, what is God doing through all of this? He's preparing him. God is using his sickness. He's using His desperation, he's using his weeping, his praying, he's using his healing, he's using the sign. All of these things to strengthen him for his coming encounter with Sennacherib. Again, Sennacherib's not even a threat at this point, really. He's not there. This is all future. But God is doing this work now. God uses his illness. He uses all of these things for great good. He He has purpose in the weeping. And it's in his weakness that he experiences the power of God. And, the, and it's in his weakness that he lays hold of the promises of God. Where they just go deep, deep, deep into his soul to prepare him for what's coming. And, and you know, I, I've noticed that God has a curious ability to, to accomplish in a matter of days, weeks, 
maybe months through suffering, what it would take him years or decades to do without suffering. Have you seen that in your life? I mean, how God can grow us and change us through hardships and heartaches. It's not that we invite pain and it's not that pain is morally good or something like that and we should just run to it. No, that's not it at all. In fact, sometimes suffering and pain, it it brings out the ugliness in our hearts and even that's the grace of God to see it. Um, But God uses suffering and he, he wants us to cry out to him in our frailty and turn to him. And he'll use it for great good. And so when we do cry out to him, God uses our present pain to prepare us for future usefulness. That's what we, what we see in Hezekiah's case. We don't know how. I don't know how God. I, and, and, I, and don't try to answer that for other people. That's a, that's a, that's a dangerous thing to say when, when you're coming alongside someone who's suffering. Well, I know how God wants to use this in your life. And this is why God is doing this. We don't know. We don't know, but we can be confident that he has, does have a purpose. I don't know why God, what God wants to use, how he wants to use your pain, your chronic pain, your disease. I don't know how he wants to use your job loss. I don't know how he wants to use that rejection letter from the college that you really wanted to get in, students. I don't know how he wants to use the breakup of your family. But, but if you turn to the Lord in your frailty, weeping, crying out to God... You can be confident that he will use that present suffering for tremendous good in the future. We have that confidence. So that's, that's the first way we see this principle at work that our relation to God is, is what sets the trajectory of our lives. That's more important than anything else. And, and, and the writer is showing us this, this posture of Hezekiah's heart here. The second way we see it is in verses 12 to 21 of chapter 12. And, it, and the statement is this, when we respond to God's rebuke in our failure, he preserves us. When we respond to God's rebuke in our failure, he preserves, preserves us. The writer of Second Chronicles, which is a parallel to our text here in Kings, he tells us that after God heals Hezekiah, that Hezekiah's heart grows proud. Second Chronicles 32.25 and, and this is one of the things this shows us is that one of the strange habits of the human heart is to feel proud about what we've received by grace. That that when God blesses us, we're tempted to believe that it says something about us and our merit rather than God and His just abundant grace. And so as a parent, you raise your kids and they, they love God and they follow after Him and so you you are full of yourself. I've got this down. Give me the book deal. I can write a book on how to parent kids. And it's, it's, this is, it's grace. It's grace. It, it, you, maybe God allows you to prosper in your business or in material blessings. And yet you can become proud and self-indulgent and stingy and not generous. And you think you've earned the right to do what you want to do with your money. It's, just, it's, it's dangerous, folks. Pride is a parasite that loves to feed upon what God gives us by His grace. And it remains the enemy of us all. We need to watch out for it, brothers and sisters. I think I've mentioned these, these common forms of pride that Jerry Bridges mentions, mentions in his book, Respectable Sins. But these are common forms of pride even in the church among strong believers. Let me just list them and I can't really comment Moral self-righteousness, I think that's pretty obvious. 
correct doctrine, pride of correct doctrine. That's a temptation for us, isn't it? Pride of achievement, accomplishment. The pride of an independent spirit. Oh, that's rife in our culture. Just we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. No authority over us. Not being teachable. Not listening to others. That's pride. Well, the writer of Kings tells us the form that Hezekiah's pride took. And there's this delegation that arrives from Babylon. Verse 12. Bearing letters and a present to Hezekiah. Babylon. This is the first time Babylon shows up here as a player in this region. And and we know, again, Hezekiah doesn't have a clue what role they're going to play in the future destruction of the nation. But we we have the benefit of knowing what's coming. And so this delegation is sent because the king of Babylon heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And, and we know from Chronicles he didn't just hear about the sickness, but he also heard about the healing and the and the sign that was given of the ten steps backward, backwards. And so the news of Hezekiah's healing is trending on Twitter in that region. Hashtag skin boils. Hashtag cat tongue or something like that. Um, but there's a, there's a bigger and more basic reason that Babylon is there. And, and it's, it's that they know that Hezekiah has rebelled against Against Assyria. And so they're scanning the region. Are there any other potential allies that would join with us in a coalition against Assyria? And so Hezekiah proves to be one who just welcomes them with open arms. And open doors. And he's flattered with all the attention that he's getting from his delegation from Babylon. And and this up and coming power in the region. And and he doesn't want to be viewed as some second rate king. So he just... He just opens up the palace and he's going around, verse 13, and Hezekiah welcomed them and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. What a bonehead move. And we know that because, again, we have the luxury of seeing what's coming, but, but really any no wise king would ever do this, even with their most trusted allies. But he shows his hand in this pathetic attempt to schmooze and to, to impress these Babylonians. And, he's, and he's, he's maybe even trying to enter into this alliance with them. Not trusting God to protect them against Assyria. But, but thinking maybe if he can garner these relationships and this ally with Babylon. Now Isaiah is not present during this visit. But Isaiah shows up. And God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah and he comes to Hezekiah and he thumps him on the forehead and says what are you thinking uh, version of that but he asks these questions verse 14 he said to, to him what did these men say and from where did they come to you verse 15 what have they seen in your house he's peppering him with these questions and Hezekiah knows he's a true prophet of God so he doesn't withhold honest answers And he tells them exactly what he's shown them and who they are and where they came from. And then Isaiah makes very clear the foolishness of Hezekiah's actions. Verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that stuff you showed off, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
So what is, what is going on here? What is Hezekiah doing? What's the real core of the concern here? So what is he doing? He's trusting in his political savvy more than he's trusting in God. He sought approval from a pagan king rather than seeking direction from God. He didn't call Isaiah, what do I do? What should I do here? How should I respond to the Babylonians? This is a lesson we learn from this account. It's that whatever we turn to as a substitute for the Lord will come, eventually come back and turn on us. Whatever we pursue is, this, is what we think is this immediate solution. Without seeking God, without, without seeking His Word, seeking His wisdom, then it's going to pr- prove to be a long-term catastrophe for us. I mean, you think of every addiction that I could think of. I mean, and there are, there's an endless number of possible ways we can be addicted to different things. Food, drugs, pornography, alcohol, shopping, gaming, social media, on and on and on. What does it begin with? It begins with looking to something or someone else other than God for what only God can give. We want relief. We want to sleep well. We want to, we want to relax. We want to be able to just chill. We want to, we want to hide. We want, we want something that God gives in Himself. And we look to something else as a substitute. And what eventually happens? It comes back crashing on our heads. And, and this is what we find in Hezekiah here. So Hezekiah is busted. How's he going to respond? Is he going to get up in God's face? Is he going to try to shut the mouth of Isaiah? Thankfully, no. Because his heart is God's. He is rightly related to God, even though he, he messes up big time here. Verse 19, you see his response. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Now, how does that strike you? <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> as long as I don't have to deal with Babylon, I mean, hey, you can take it. Good for that's great. No, this could be understood in one of two ways. One, it could maybe it maybe it's a self-centered concern. He's only looking out for his own well-being. But I think it's probably this. He's, he's he's accepting the inevitability of judgment, and yet he's grat- he, he's grateful that this event will be delayed. And I think there's probably even a measure of hope that says if if they will return, if God may relent concerning this judgment, he'd be right in line with his character to do so. If the people remain faithful to him. Well, the, the account of Hezekiah ends in verse 20 and 21. You have the typical formula. Uh, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might. And how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the books, book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. There's the... The tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel, and many of you have been to Jerusalem, you can still see this remarkable tunnel that he dug to, in, in preparation for the Assyrian assault. Um, you know, there's even application there. He prayed to God, he trusted the Lord, but he also dug a tunnel. He wanted to make sure there was water in case there was a siege. And there's nothing wrong with preparing as we pray and trust and working. It's not that we just let go and let God. Um, but... What is the, what the, the, the thing that the writer really wants to emphasize? I mean, he makes one comment. He says, if you want to know about that stuff, go read Chronicles. Only thing the writer of Kings really cares about, only achievements, only things that really matter to him are those spiritual reforms, the revival in the land. He didn't care about the military maneuvering. He doesn't care about the, the construction projects, the political 
stuff. He cares about the spiritual achievements. I just say then, the, the achievements that matter most in life are not physical or political, but spiritual. And we, we, need to, we need that lesson to sink down into our souls. I know we can get so caught up in, in the physical world. We are, that, is, that is just part of the, the worldview in which we're, we're constantly exposed to. And the political. We, think, we, we get caught up thinking the answers are going to be po- political. And, and we can be consumed with giving too much time and tension of thought. Uh, listening to political conversations and, and pursuing political ends, means to, to ends. And what God says, what's really important is, is a spiritual work. God has a mission. God has a, has a kingdom. God has a purpose. And I don't know what God will allow you to accomplish in your life. Some of you will go on to do great things and will just rejoice. Man, I'm, I went to church with that guy. It was, yeah, yeah. And so just remember me and... And uh, well, take me out to lunch or something if you're in town. Um, you may do great things and books may be written about you or at least Facebook posts or something. I don't know. Um, but most of us will live pretty normal, ordinary lives that are well under the radar of the world, humanly speaking. But whatever God has given you in terms of time and resources and energy and opportunities and education and health and career and personality and interests and hobbies, whatever he's given you, whatever the package that God has entrusted to you, this is what you, you leverage every bit of that to throw yourself into maximum involvement in God's mission. That's, that's what we'll be talking about this summer even. We'll be having a series, Leveraging Your Life or Leveraging Life, something like that. And, and what we're going to be seeing is... is Every single one of us has been placed where we're at by God, for now anyway. And, and he's given us resources and used that to, to make a mark for the kingdom, for God's sake. Um, live in line with God's mission right where you are. Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And, and you may not be famous for God as that radio commercial that just makes my skin crawl every time I hear it. Um, but 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 every single one of us can do that, and and we can pursue that accomplishment. All right, we're gonna have to move quick here in 21. Now we get to the bad news, so we can we can breeze past that, right? Third way we see our relationship to God is what determines the course of our lives. Is this is when we turn from the Lord, from the Lord in deliberate rebellion, we open up the gates for all kinds of evil. So Hezekiah is succeeded by a man who has the honor, really the shame, of being the most wicked king ever to rule in Judah. And he must have taken the throne by force, right? There must have been a coup that rose up. He was assassinated, Hezekiah, and overthrew the the family dynasty. No. It's Hezekiah's son, raised in righteous Hezekiah's house. And he becomes the spiritual buffoon of a king. One of the things that shows us, and I've said this already, so I want to elaborate, but godliness is not genetic. Spiritual stability is not, is not passed on uh, from parent to child necessarily. It's not inherited. It's got to be the spirit at work in, in, in every, every person's life. That's why, again, parents pray. Children, and just application to you, young people, or even grown, grown children. Maybe you struggle with 
how you were raised, how your parents treated you, the breakup of your family. That, take courage and comfort. It's not genetic, spiritual stupidity. And that no matter what kind of parents you have or had, God, God can use your life for great things. Um, but ironically, Manasseh is going to be the longest reigning king in Judah. And, and, and the evil done by him, though, is something the writer really doesn't want us to miss. And that's what he focuses on. He's not just equated with wicked Ahab like Ahaz was. No, he's, he's a, instead, in verse 2 of chapter 21, he's, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. That's the standard, which is far worse than even Ahab. He's, he's as bad as the Canaanite pagans that were, that were occupied this land. He, he's the very antithesis of everything that his father loved and pursued. And he undid every reform that his father Put in place. And so he gives us this catalog of his sins. The first sin overturns again the very thing that we were so happy for that made his father distinctive. Verse 3 He rebuilt the high places. <sighs> no. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He also imitates Ahab. He erects altars for Baal. Verse 3 And made Asherah as Ahab had done. So Baalism is now a state-sanctioned, state-sponsored religion again. He also introduces pagan star worship, astral worship that's popular with the Assyrians but abhorrent to God. His major attack is on the sanctity of the temple. He pollutes temple worship with polytheism. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord to false gods and altars for all the hosts of heaven. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophets, talk about how deeply saturated the temple became with with idolatry and, and, and it's Manasseh's DNA that's all over that crime scene. He's responsible. He also follows Ahaz in the awful practice of child sacrifice, burning his own son as an offering, verse 6 tells us. And he adds other pagan practices, fortune telling and omens and mediums and, and, and on and on. And we're given more insight in verse 16 to his depravity. He shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. And that's probably the persecution of those who opposed his paganism. Those who wanted to remain loyal to the Lord. He killed him. He just purged the land of him. And so this, this, we've turned a corner now in Judah. And, and Judah is just barreling toward destruction under Manasseh's leadership. And the people aren't just passive, innocent in this. They're, they're gladly following him. That's what we'll see. That it's not just accidental sin. It's, it's intentional. It's determined even among the people. And we can't blame others for our sin either. We don't just, we, we sin because we choose to sin. And, and we can't blame our parents, our government, our culture, our church leaders, anything else. It's, 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 the blame lies with us. But, and, and so the, he goes on to show how defiant their sin was in verse 7 to 8. He's just explaining the purpose that God gave and for the temple. Was his name was on it. And, and it's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the, and the Davidic covenant. And, and, and yet there's this condition. They had to keep God's law. Verse 8. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. 
And then God raises up prophets, just like he did when raising up Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. And he raises up these prophets to confront Manasseh. And he indicts the Manasseh for his sin. He indicts the nation for their involvement. And he says, they, plural, they have done what is evil in my sight. And they have provoked me to anger. Verse 15, the whole nation is complicit. And then he pronounces the the the, the Verdict right in the sentence right in the middle of his indictment and he has this repeated I will I will I will He talks about using this measuring line the plumb line the same standard of judgment that he judged Samaria and judged Ahab by he's going to judge them and he's like a divine building inspector and he's going to go in and he's going to see This building is worthless. It needs to be condemned. That's what God is doing and disaster will be complete, verse 14 tells us. I'm just having to quickly summarize. And he doesn't say when judgment will come, but it's inevitable. And, and the end of his reign is given this typical formulaic pattern. There's a reminder of sin that he committed. And then we, we have to go. You, you can go to Chronicles. And interestingly, because... Writer King says nothing of these things. It tells about him being deported to Babylon, and it tells him, it tells about him repenting, repenting there, and recognizing the Lord again, and and returning to Jerusalem, and carrying out many reforms actually in the land. But the writer of Kings, he's not impressed. He's just too little, too late, insignificant. I, I think what it what that says is his conversion, his change. It may have had great personal significance to Manasseh, but it meant nothing really in terms of the national of national importance. The die has been cast. And this is this is what I want you to see. It's a dangerous thing to put yourself in opposition to God. That is not God is not one to be trifled with. Um, you don't have a clue how much grace God gives you just to restrain evil in your life, even in your rebellion against him. You don't have a clue. If you think that you've, God means nothing, he's not doing, he's not active, he's not alive, he's not real. You don't know what God is doing to, to, to restrain the consequences of your sin in your life and your sin. And, and, and yet, if you persist in that, God will allow your sin, will allow your consequences to come crashing on your head. Like a wall of water. And, and this is what's happened with Manasseh. Don't, don't trifle with the Lord. Turn to him. Trust him. You've got to be rightly related to him. Fourth thing. We're done. When we imitate our parents' ungodliness, we will be held accountable. Um, Manasseh's son doesn't get a free pass from God just because his dad is deadbeat. He doesn't. He's held just as accountable. He's 22 when he comes to the throne, Amen. He's morally, politically, spiritually just as corrupt as his dad. Verse 20 tells us this, he does evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh's father has done, father had done. He reigns for only two years. His dad reigned for 55 years. He reigns for two years. There's a coup that takes place, verse 23 tells us, and they put him to death in his house. And, and the people don't allow the coup leaders to have their way though, so they end up putting Amon's son on the throne in his place. They struck down those who conspired against King Amon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. But Amon passes off the scene really unlamented. He's just, he came and he went just like his dad. Um, well, all right, let's, I just want to move to the conclusion. Just 
put, put that last quote on the screen, and I've read this before you many times, and many of you have read um, uh, uh, Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, and that, in which this is found. But he says this, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, that's what separates Hezekiah and Ahaz. That's what separates Manasseh from Hezekiah. To Hezekiah, Yahweh is God Almighty. Yahweh is, he alone can be trusted. His word matters. His, his nearness is more precious than anything. His power is unparalleled. His wisdom is desperately needed. That's, that's, that's how Hezekiah thinks about God. But then you looked at Manasseh and Ammon, and Yahweh is one God among many. He's not worthy of total trust. His word really doesn't matter. His, his power really isn't greater than Assyria. He, he's not enough to satisfy the deepest longings of his soul, so he's got to look for other things and just the plethora of idols to satisfy himself. There's no more crucial issue for, than for you and me to think about is, is, is this. Is what comes to mind when you think about God? Uh, how, who is God to you? How do you relate to Him? That's going to make all the difference in the trajectory of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that um, You... You desire for us to be near you. You desire our, our hearts to be wholly yours. And you do whatever it takes to make them that. And God, that is a dangerous prayer and a scary prayer to even pray, God. But I pray that each one of us will be able to say that, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, Lord, make my heart wholly yours. Use me, Lord. Make me useful to you. Use, use my pain. Use suffering if it's necessary. Use our sorrows. Use our bitter weeping to just drive us close to you. Drive us to just enfold in your arms and in your breast, Lord. That, that do whatever it takes to help us trust you alone, to have deep confidence and and just utter dependence upon you, Lord. Um, and from that place of confidence, God, we know that you can use us uh, to accomplish great things for the glory of your name. And Lord, do that. Not just with the onesies and twosies of us individually, but even collectively, Lord. May this be our corporate cry, Lord, to you, God. Whatever it takes in us as a body. To, to help us just lean hard on you, Lord. And avail ourselves, God. And avail our lives and, and our resources and our time and our energy and, and all things, Lord God, to, to just say, God, use us. Use us. Prepare us through whatever, it, whatever means necessary to, to get to that point, Lord. Um, I thank you, Lord, again. I thank you that when we pray, you hear. We weep, you see. And I pray, God, I pray that 
for those that are here that are weeping and praying, I pray that you would give comfort uh, by your spirit through your word today. And, and I pray for those that are here that may not, may not be rightly related to God, may not be related at all. I pray that they would um, see their need for that. And that if there's anybody here who's not trusted in Jesus Christ, doesn't even know what that means. What is it? What am I talking about? I pray that they would come speak with someone, speak with whoever they came with, find the person sitting next to them, ask them. And that, um, that they wouldn't leave this place without that relationship with you that changes everything. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.